0: here oh, yeah. in the 11FS offices in London for Episode 98 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain and cryptography meet the changing worlds of finance and consumer products. Today we bring you what is the intrinsic value of a Bitcoin? Brave go big in a Series A, very brave. And we're celebrating the 10,000 Bitcoin pizzas. All this and more on today's Blockchain Insider. I'm your host, Simon Taylor, and there's no Colin today, but my goodness, do we have an upgrade. Uh, we've got the pleasure of being joined by Blockchain insider Favourite, the one and only Sarah Feenan. How are you doing? Good, thank you. How are you? Thanks for getting back into the co-hosting duties. I'm uh, really well, thank you. Probably a little bit over-caffeinated. You?
1: Oh, good. Yeah. This is going to be a fun show. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's a bit late for me and caffeine. You know, I don't normally drink caffeine after 12 o'clock. So.
0: Oh, wow. So you've got like six hours in your day in which you can have caffeine?
1: Uh, yeah, pretty much. If I would get up at six to immediately start drinking coffee, which is definitely what I would be doing at 6am.
0: Well, that maybe that's just me that has a Pepsi Max when I walk out of bed in the morning. <laughs> um, but enough about my weird caffeine habits. Um, let's just get uh, into some shilling, shall we? Um, we're going to be doing a special live show to celebrate 100 episodes of Blockchain Insider. Colin G. Platt and I will be live in the flesh, in the actual, actual flesh, on stage with some fasting, uh, some fasting guests? No. Uh, although it is ramadan um some fantastic guests in level 39 canary wharf on the 11th of june yes the 11th of june we like that number um so to grab your tickets head over to bit.ly forward slash live that's bit.ly forward slash blockchain insider live to register hurry they're going fast um if you're commuting right now like look at your phone bit.ly forward slash blockchain insider live all right on with the news First story this week uh, comes from thenextweb.com, and JP Morgan says the Bitcoin price has jumped beyond its, quote, intrinsic value, which, uh, which is interesting because people for a long time were saying Bitcoin has no intrinsic value. So <laughs> there's a headline. Um, To come to the conclusion, JP Morgan team treated Bitcoin like it were a commodity, calculating its cost of production based on a number of factors, including estimated computational power, electricity expense, and hardware energy efficiency. Uh, And the analysts say defining an intrinsic or fair value for any cryptocurrency is clearly challenging. Clearly, yeah.
1: Well, that's an understatement in itself, really, isn't it? So, uh, it's interesting that they've treated Bitcoin like a commodity. Of course, it is. You know, it has futures trading in it. And the, those are, of course, regulated by the CFTC, Commodities Futures Trading uh, Corporation. Um, but, but there's been a number of different attempts at trying to value cryptocurrencies over the years and treating it as a commodity. is not one that I've seen very frequently. I'm not sure about you.
0: Well, the CFTC, as you say, does have jurisdiction over it. I think that the first time I ever saw this was in two thousand and thirteen Gemini an old Gemini deck where they said actually Bitcoin looks a lot more like gold than it does um mm-hmm. money and and that's actually no great surprise really when you think about it um a lot of the people that built bitcoin were the old e-gold people and digital gold Mm. there were there were sort of two movements at the beginning of bitcoin there was the digi cash and um, peer-to-peer electronic cash and then there was the the digital gold movement so it's no surprise that heritage is is really there and actually if you think about the easiest way I often find to describe Bitcoin is like gold with a teleporter. It's like, if, if I could teleport some gold to the other side of the world, I have moved a store of value. Um, you might not be able to easily spend that gold, but you have something that is widely recognized as, as having some value. Um, and also the ability to now teleport it to the other side of the world is, is, is quite new. Yeah, a but
1: teleportation it's, device is good. On, but on it's right.
0: expensive to mine. You know, once you've got one, they're quite valuable. Protecting it's really, really hard. Like the metaphor sort of makes some sense.
1: It does, and especially if you look at... Obviously, this news has come from J.P. Morgan. This is an analyst's um, report from a J.P. Morgan report. Um, And as traders or as an investment bank with the trading desk, cryptocurrency or otherwise, you can see why that is a route that they go down. Um, If you look at the Bitcoin futures, you normally not necessarily um, price the underlying commodity using the futures, but the traders do. That's certainly Mm. when they talk about the price of a barrel of oil, they're talking about the future price of a barrel barrel of oil. That's surprisingly hard to say. Yeah, surprisingly (laughs) hard to say,
0: a barrel of of lols. JPM have had a long-standing history with crypto as well because they've not just uh, had uh, their CEO make some fairly famous announcements and pronouncements about how much Bitcoin was a scam, etc. They actually have their own JPM coin. Um, So it's, uh, it's really interesting positioning from JP Morgan. I get the sense that it, you know, banks have analyst teams and their analyst teams are always trying to put out information that's going to get their buy side clients and their institutions interested. And it's an excuse to go have a chat with a pension fund or a big corporate or, or somebody. And, and Bitcoin is, is topical for better or worse. So I can see why the analysts are doing it, but it doesn't necessarily say that JPM are doing anything with Bitcoin itself.
1: Not Bitcoin, no. I mean, they've obviously been quite um, prominent in the enterprise Ethereum space for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and JPM Coin is using their infrastructure that they built.
0: Yeah, the Quorum infrastructure, Quorum, I believe JPM yeah. Coin sits on.
1: Exactly. And um, yeah, I mean, they've been very involved in the infrastructure side, as well as from the kind of asset management trading desk side too. So, no great surprise. But I don't, yeah, I wouldn't take this as a uh, JPM doing anything with Bitcoin, per se.
0: Although, interestingly, their analysts um, and Goldman's analysts, if you look back historically, have been quite good at predicting the price movement. So, uh, I mean... Might. Maybe I'm being a little cynical here, but, but it's almost like, hey, it's above intrinsic value. Basically, we accumulated a bunch in the past and we'd really like you to sell it now because we want a profit take. So
1: I'm glad you said that because that was going to be my take on um, good at predicting the price. I mean, it's a thinly traded market that's got uh, very light regulation. So I'm not saying anything by saying that. or making any accusations. Yeah. It's just an observation.
0: Yeah, of course. And, and uh, we know that um, none of these organisations... Uh, do actually hold Bitcoin directly. So the, their ability to benefit from, from such movements would be, would be limited. But I think the more interesting point is JP Morgan are an interesting organization to watch in that uh, I think they, they see Bitcoin as marketing as an excuse to come have a conversation about actually what are your problems with payments? Uh, what can we do with tokens and how can we do that? And of course, if you're interested in JPM coin, um, then we may learn a little bit more about that at Blockchain Inside Alive. Another
1: shill, very nice. Well, shill on yeah. a shill
0: bit.ly forward slash blockchain inside of life <laughs> <laughs> I can chill with the best of them uh, alright uh, sticking with banks blockchain and crypto a uh, story from coindesk.com ABN Amro the Dutch bank have eyed the launch of a blockchain inventory platform uh, dropping a plan for a wallet so um, as as they've um, dropped their exploration of a wallet product they're seeking to launch a blockchain platform for trade inventory um, Accenture, Anglo-American, CMST International, Hartree Partners, ING, Macquarie, uh, OC, BC Bank are among the firms to have already signed an MOU to launch the platform. And ABN explained, the platform can communicate with physical trade inventories through the Internet of Things, sensors and near-field communication trips. As a result, inventories, which are often collateral for loans, can be monitored very effectively, which will lead to more secure physical handling processes and a reduction of costs.
1: Mm. Very nice. I mean, leaving aside all of the all the buzzwords under the sun in that uh, comment,
0: they, they, they were missing AI. Like, the, then we'd were, have had a line.
1: Without a doubt, there'll be an AI layer on the data that they gather from all of these physical uh, inventory items. Will there actually.
0: be robots? Can I have robot Definitely. process automation? Where's the VR? <laughs>
1: <laughs> VR, yes, you could look at your inventory, couldn't you? And maybe, now we just need to get McKinsey to
0: rubber stamp this and produce the PowerPoint, and we're set. Um, <laughs> uh, so. Like, what's interesting about this, though, is, is maybe it solves a real problem because I think agreeing about a set of facts is hard. Um, I know it sounds really simple when you say it like that, but uh, where is that ship? Um, what's mm. the what's the temperature of that oil? Um, are those fish still fresh when they left the port or did they get spoiled by the ship owner or did they get spoiled when they were held by the factory? Mm-hmm. Um, so on such things, loans can uh, be paid out. Uh, on such things, insurance could be paid. Uh, so actually getting everybody to agree to that set of facts driven by sensors, could be hugely powerful.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, we've always liked the actual use case stories on this show, so mm-hmm. this is this is a nice one. Plus it's called Force Fields, which is a great name for a project. So, well done there, ABN Amro. Um I kind of wanted to not to, we can go back to the the trade finance inventory stuff, but the um the whole dropping the wallet thing. <laughs> I think it's more about this story that they've really framed it at the top at the start and the end of dropping the wallet Wally. Um someone's very good at naming things at ABN. Mm-hmm. Um and it se- I think it says at the end, this is the second time the institution has been forced to deny wallet product rumours. Back in 2016, Coindex reported, blah, blah, blah. 2016 was quite a long time ago. Are they being forced to deny rumours because they actually just dropped the project ages ago and someone keeps asking them about it? Yeah, but what about your
0: Bitcoin wallet? <laughs> what about your Bitcoin wallet? Yeah, Are no, you still doing a Bitcoin wallet? <laughs> yeah, I, I love your Coindex. Forced
1: to deny facts that aren't true a number of occasions. And crypto so, yeah. journals.
0: Like, it's getting weird. Like, are you up to a Bitcoin wallet? When, moon? It's like, eh, chill out. Like, they're probably not working on something along those lines. But ABN uh, have been really interesting for quite some time. They were one of the first uh, to look at ZK Starks and the zero uh, a, a flip on how you work with zero-knowledge proofs and, and at the cutting edge of cryptography. People like to bash the banks as being not really getting it and understanding it, but that's not the case here. They're doing some really interesting things, and this sounds like it solves a real problem. My fear for trade finance is I'm aware of at least 10 different consortia. There's uh, Voltron. There's Marco Polo. There's, um, oh, who am I forgetting? The obvious one, Trade. There's a whole bunch of them out there. Uh, so, I, and I know the consortia are now forming a consortia of consortia. But, like,
1: uh yeah it's like with standards production isn't it you kind of just end up with with another another thing Uh, it's always like trying to find that
0: goldilocks not too hot not too cold size of a problem to solve and maybe abn can do it
1: yeah maybe i mean that goldilocks would be a good name for a project if you're listening anyone from abn
0: yes there you go like not too big not too small solve a real customer problem and actually i often wonder like What's the product side of this look like? What does the user interface side? Because yeah, it's going to use a blockchain. We know that, but why? Okay, yeah, you're going to have data and and agree to the facts. Okay, so what does that mean for my loan? Is that a service now? Am I getting a cheaper loan, a faster loan, a better loan? Are you getting something that's relevant to my data? What's the customer tangible benefit here? And I think that sometimes gets lost in the conversation. Alrighty, next story comes from Coindesk.com, Beyond KYC, uh, regulators set to adopt tough new rules for crypto exchanges. Uh, this is a pretty pretty meaty article by um, the one and only Mark Hockenstein um, from. Uh, sorry, Mark. Um, Mark Hockstein from uh, Coindesk. But also, uh, they had Nikolesh and they had Anna uh, from Coindesk really take their time and do kind of a really big deep dive into. Uh, some potential new rules. Now, the rules are coming from an organisation called the Financial Action Task Force, also known as FATF, which to a British ear does make does sound quite rude. Um, <laughs> um, but they're looking at new international standards for regulating cryptocurrency firms from next month. Uh, and FATF basically work with all of the um, kind of national policymakers and go. Um, for KYC AML, for knowing your customer and preventing money laundering and terrorist financing, here's how we're going to harmonize and figure out how all the rules are going to be the same across all of the countries. And they've been looking at crypto. Now, uh, in the US, FinCEN's been there for quite some time. They issued guidance in 2013. Um, The EU's looking at the fifth uh, anti-money laundering directive, um, 5MLD. Um, But actually, how do you get that together? Now, they produced a paper in sort of April time, and then there was a um, there was a, a roundtable in Vienna at the sort of uh, end of April, beginning of May. Um, that was actually attended by uh, a great number of the great and the good, and, and disclosure, uh, and one of the uh, co-chairs of Global Digital Finance, and a number of our members were there. There's a problem. This is solving is real. KYC and AML is a problem in in crypto, um, but there's a lot to pick through here. So, uh, mm. what were your thoughts when you saw this one, Sarah?
1: Um, oh, well, it's a, a yeah, like you say, many it's, thoughts. it's a, many thoughts. It's a meaty, it's a meaty article, it's a meaty topic. Um, we've spoken before about uh, the US kind of taking a lead on regulatory um, guidance around cryptocurrencies or, or, or crypto assets. Um, but it is a inherently globally tradable thing, that's literally the point. So, it doesn't really make sense to do anything other than have some kind of harmony of regulation across all these jurisdictions, if that's the route you want to go down, which clearly FATF does. Um, and interestingly, I think the, the US are holding the pen on uh, FATF's rotations, jurisdictional rotation at the moment.
0: Yeah, so... Um- FATF basically has a rotating one-year presidency, and currently the U.S. is sitting as the president of the Financial Action Task Force. And so the U.S. can um, push for its its given agenda and, and set the timetable of what would be discussed. And they are trying to get the global regulatory bodies aligned behind managing risks around crypto assets. Which comes to the point, what are the risks around crypto assets? We see... Definitely, lots of hacking, um, and there's a real risk of consumer protection. But if you speak to anybody in law enforcement, and um, like, or, or even the guys at Chainalysis, they'll tell you uh, there's there's a significant and increasing amount of criminality happening in crypto, and we shouldn't shy away from that. But over ninety, you shouldn't the,
1: shy away from doing the crime. Is that what you're saying? Yeah,
0: do the crime, do the time. <laughs> um, shy away from the fact that 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 crime exists and criminality yep. exists in crypto. Like, that's a thing and it does happen. Um, but over 90% of that happens in Bitcoin, according to um, Johnny Levin from Chinalysis. So we get worried about Monero and Zcash and privacy coins. We get worried about decentralized exchanges. Uh, and so I think a lot of the things people worry about are not the not the core worry and, and the core of where the uh, pain is.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so I, I think that, that brings us on to another point of this regulation, which will be for exchanges and and wallet businesses. um, But will that just push the crime elsewhere in in the same way that naturally it does when... Well, with with anything, really. There's crime in jewellery, right?
0: Yeah. um, It's
1: a good way to transport a lot of money across border, so I'm told.
0: So traditionally with um, KYC AML, the idea of knowing your customer was, if I'm a customer of a bank, you're a customer of a bank, um, somewhere somebody committed a crime in cash and tried to put it into the bank, the regulator can go to all of the banks and say, we followed the money and can you tell me who this person is, please? Lo and behold, we catched a bad guy, everybody's happy. However... That doesn't... A, eh? one, I'd question how effective that is. Um, there's, there was a study by the UN in 2012 that estimated um, there's about $2 trillion worth of money laundering and terrorist financing in a given year. That's an astonishing number. Um, and of that $2 trillion that's laundered, uh, we detect or become aware of about 2 percent of that 2000000000000 of that $2 trillion. Of that 2%, we detect we are able to raise a suspicious activity report against 2%. Of that 2%, we successfully prosecute 2%. So you're dealing with an incredibly small fraction Mm -hmm. and a woefully inadequate system. So uh, one of my points is that system doesn't work in the mainstream. Simply transplanting it on top of crypto may not actually solve the problem. Now, it may may be better than nothing, and, and we should look at it, but it's it's not the only piece. Crypto gives you all kinds of forensics tools like a analysis and, uh, and like um, uh, cipher and, and many, uh, Elliptic and many others. There are all these organizations that do that. So how do you solve those problems? And the particularly contentious piece, actually stepping back. So the really important thing here is weirdly, there's actually quite a lot of agreement between what FinCEN said in 2013 and, and now what um, FATF are saying. The crypto community, for the most part, have gone, yeah, that looks about right. That looks about fine. Like, There's a lot of agreement here. But there's one piece that's a real sticking point. Um, so paragraph 7b in the recent guidance by, um, by, uh, by FATF… Um, read countries should ensure that originating um, virtual asset service providers obtain and hold required, accurate, uh, required and accurate originator sender information and beneficiary information on virtual asset transfers, and submit that information and make it available on request. Now, sounds easy, right? Yeah. Uh, if it's um, Coin, Coinbase to Kraken that's really easy if it's wallet 123 to wallet abc kind of impossible mm. if it's wallet abc to wallet 123 to coinbase how is coinbase supposed to be responsible for the wild west um now the way you solve this in uh in banking banking thank you that was the word <laughs> forgot uh, about it uh, with cash is basically say, look, somebody who's coming in to deposit more than a thousand pounds, I'm going to want to see some more information from them because it's a bit dodgy if somebody walks in with a briefcase of a hundred thousand hmm. pounds. Like, where did they get that hundred thousand pounds? Yeah, I so, want to know
1: where did they get that.
0: So there's sensible ways to do that, but to. The risk is you, you're expecting uh, each organization that operates in crypto to take responsibility for all of crypto. And, and and this is a sticking point that actually, I suspect, a lot of the banks is preventing a lot of the banks from getting into this space. Because you, you potentially, according to this reading, in order to operate in crypto, every organization that operates in crypto must take responsibility for all financial crime that happens in crypto. Yeah. It's just not workable. Um, so this is going to be interesting because they seem to be really, really pushing for it regardless.
1: But it's also not just financial crime because, of course, um, we, we all have to go through KYC, whether it's crypto trading or, or whatever or normal bank stuff. doesn't mean we're all committing financial crime. So yeah. these are laws that are applied to every single account. So the kind of libertarian view of that is um, why should I have to prove where these funds came from if it wasn't for an illegal purpose, Um uh, in this instance, kind of crypto does hail from a sort of libertarian background, so I can't imagine there's a lot of crypto people that aren't necessarily reg analysts in a regulated uh, look, institution there is, there such is, as that, Coinbase.
0: Yeah, there, there's definitely that voice as well, mm. um, and, and the GDF membership certainly does does include some of that. But for for the overwhelming majority. This is more about a workable, effective solution than it is um, following a paper process for the sake of a paper process. Like, demonstrate. And I think reading between the lines, uh, there's a desire to have something. And the only thing we know is the thing that we used to do. And so maybe there's a bit of time now for the industry to go, here's something you could do instead. So, shill number two of the show. If you are interested in, in pushing <laughs> back on some of this, um, get in touch. Um, Simon at 11fs.com or our, um, hello at gdf.io. Um, we're definitely working at how we can do that. Um, and what? It's chill o'clock, Sarah. It's sh-
1: is it Shill Clock?
0: It's Shill Clock right now. News. Um, this episode's brought to you by R3. Um, apparently, it's been a big year for R3, the enterprise software firm behind Corda. Uh, Corda is fast becoming the gold standard in enterprise blockchain technology uh, because it's an out of the box blockchain platform built specifically for businesses that come in two versions open source and enterprise. Both completely interoperable and compatible, Uh, you can get started on Corda open source and easily migrate to enterprise as your business requirements evolve. The Corda platform offers the best of both worlds and it's backed by a vibrant community of over 200 application builders and consumers. Uh, Download Corda open source on GitHub today or visit r3.com to download Corda enterprise on a trial basis. Already on with the show.
1: I think I need a gin after that show.
0: <laughs> it, it it's been it's I'm getting shilly. I need a I need a cardigan. <laughs> yeah, that was a pun. Um, all right, um, CoinDesk.com. Um, the Brave browser are going to raise over thirty million dollars in a Series A equity round. Um, so just a reminder, the Brave browser is the privacy-focused browser. Competes with Firefox, Chrome, Safari. Um, and is available on your phones, available on desktop um, and laptops and, and most uh, most major devices. Um, but it's, of course, got the uh, browser element to it. And then they've got the basic attention token element. So they were one of the ones that did an ICO. Um, and it's really privacy-focused. Um, but they, the really interesting thing is... Um, Some of the people that are involved in this uh, project go way back to the early days of the Internet. So you've got the um, JavaScript creator, Brendan Eich, um, and uh, they launched their Brave Ads product where users are rewarded with these tokens, bat tokens, which sounds like something Batman would eat, um, (laughs) for choosing to view advertising. So there's this really interesting thing about um, privacy preserving so that you can have uh, a an internet that is low friction. Like, let's imagine a future in which I have a wallet um, sitting in my browser, and within that wallet, I can accumulate value uh, through viewing ads, um, and I get paid for, for viewing some of the ads Alternatively, I can use some of the value in that wallet to have an ad-free internet experience or to get behind paywalls at super low friction, and I can unlock access to paid content, sort of Patreon without friction, mm. um, the, removing the wall garden and just simply getting in. That's a really cool idea at its core concept, and it's interesting that they're, they're raising money for it.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously they did an ICO, uh, raised $35 million in less than a minute in 2017, so... Uh, you know, on one hand, it's really great to see some of these ICOs actually moving forward and and proving out their product. Um, but on the kind of broader spectrum, this is this is a, a very brave, um, uh-huh. probably, hence the name, uh, move away from the traditional internet business models, of course, where yeah. our, all our data is stored in the cloud and, and advertising is served up to us based on what that data is, what information they can glean from that data. Um I mean, that's huge. That's basically how the internet is working right now. Um, but it, it kind of reminds me of, I went to uh, Radical Exchange a while back and saw um, a talk from the uh, Centre for Humane Technology and they were talking about how we can actually use positive nudges on the internet and um, to actually change the way uh, our attention is being um, being mined and being um, kind of scooped into this, this business model. Um, oh, that's quite interesting. I mean, it's very... Great to see this as an example of how this business model can be changed and how the power can be put back on the users. Uh, I guess it's that's for adults, though, isn't it? So I think the the main problem is when this attention that's being gleaned in the current internet business model is being pushed onto children. And you yeah, don't it's nec-
0: TikTok and it's it's, it's exactly it's all the YouTube
1: around. and and the extremities that you can see on YouTube.
0: Yeah, I think it's. Um it's the right solution, probably for the wrong generation, mm. uh, and and uh, what are they going to do to to kind of get out in front of that? But you've got to start somewhere, uh, yeah. And, and actually, you know, post Cambridge Analytica, um, in, in a world where uh, you know, Sir so Tim Berners Lee and many others are now thinking about, God, what have we done? You know, like mm-hmm. this this world in which you are now the product and your data is 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 kind of being. R- routinely exploited. And in a world in which post-GDPR, basically you ended up with another pop-up on a website that annoys you and it still takes all of your data anyway.
1: Yeah. uh, So I was looking at at some of these articles that we're talking about today, and I won't name names, but I had a situation where I had this huge banner ad for... A crypto trading thing. I'm not going to name names. And then on the other side of the screen, I've got the, the you know the cookie thing with Kanye's face with a cookie down it. Just thinking, I can't even see what the article is. Yeah. It was just taking up my whole laptop. It's ridiculous. Anyway, yeah. bitching aside, uh, I do think this is a great step forward for this project. So
0: I think there's an interesting question about what we can learn between the relationship from consumers, uh, their data, and how to manage that. Um, if, if I was in a bank, I'd be really seriously thinking, of, or, or even anybody that serves consumers, really looking at these browsers and looking at the privacy-preserving tech as something that a financial services company can start to use. Mm. Um, because banks for so long have been paranoid about data breaches in a way that other organizations just aren't. And, and actually, the social contract a bank has with its user is very, very different to the social contract a social network has with its user. You know, they, they grow and evolve from being um, the safe safekeepers of your valuables. Uh, could they not be the safekeepers of your data? Um, and, and I think that's a fair question. They, they, there's been a real question about their ability to execute on that and whether or not they they have the capacity to do so. But I really think there's something in this data management browser, mobile app, there's something in that that's really, really cool and how that links to your finances and your ability to access regular everyday consumer products. There's something to be built there and I think this is sort of pointing the way as to what the future might look like. I mean, if you think about it, subscriptions are a thing. Netflix, Spotify, you name it, their subscriptions are everywhere. So how's all of that coming together um, and, and how's, uh, how's my content and my data becoming something I own? Oh, that's
1: nice. a good
0: question. Yeah. Alrighty, um, next story this week comes from Medium.com, and it comes from a guy named Sean, um, who's got a really hard-to-pronounce last name. So, Sean, um, you no longer have a last name on the show. Um, (laughs) Poor Sean, uh, on many levels. Um, uh, The most expensive lesson of my life, details of a SIM port hack. Um, So, Sean goes on to say he lost north of $100,000 last Wednesday. It evaporated in over a 24-hour time span in a SIM port attack that drained his Coinbase account. Um, So, interestingly, I have no idea what this SIM port Um, attack
1: is. Yeah, so it's, I guess the clue's in the name. You port someone's SIM or get a replacement SIM, and um, the attacker would get a replacement SIM of your phone. And move it into a phone that they control.
0: Got it. So, so this is like when uh, you uh, change mobile operator and you get to move your phone number.
1: Exactly. You, ju-
0: you just claim to be moving a uh, phone number, or, or you go get a new phone contract and say, hey, I want to take my old yeah. number. My old number's this. But actually, that's not the attacker's old number. Of this course, is it's my the person they're attacking.
1: Yeah, Yeah, exactly, exactly. So this is my new device and I want all of that stuff to be on this new device that I'm uh, in control of. Except if that isn't you, then that person can use the control they have over the device to actually access some of your accounts or all of your accounts or even one of your most important accounts. Um, and use that, say, if they accessed your Gmail account, for example, they could use that access to be able to change all of your passwords on other things. And this brings us to uh, Sean's most expensive lesson of his life. Uh, So he had his crypto in Coinbase. We'll get onto that in a minute. And uh, somebody drained his Coinbase account. Basically, that's that, the end. And he has a very um, sad to look at, but very beautifully designed timeline of events on this uh, this medium post um and it's uh, you know poor guy he's sort of written all of this and it's, it's quite tongue-in-cheek so he's got the the attacker what they were doing what his perception is and the kind of threat level goes obviously from green to red at mm. the end of the 48 hours and it kind of explains what the attacker's done and what his response to that is and uh, also pinpoints or signposts the areas during that process where he Probably should have thought, wait, something's not right here. But hey, 2020 hindsight, um, he's learnt his lesson, but so can you, which mm-hmm. is great. So what Sean has very helpfully done is put a section in this Medium post of lessons learned, some recommendations, um, lots of things in there. Use a hardware wallet to secure your crypto. Don't leave it on the exchange, for example, because not only um, are you exposed to hacks at the exchange, you're also exposed to now these personalized attacks.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that the exposure you get in the crypto world is, is phenomenal in the sophistication of the hackers um, and, and the lack of controls around them. It's interesting that, uh, so the, the, t- the way that he describes a typical online identity here is really based around your primary email account. Mm. And um, e- primary emails tend to have a password recovery flow. Um, So if I have um, got your mobile number, I can try and log in as you and go, ah, crap, I've forgotten my... forgotten my uh, password so i'll go to your email i'll get a reset and of course i'll get the sms because now i've got yep. your mobile number and now once i'm into that i can go reset your password everywhere else yeah um because i'm in mean, your emails and your emails are what allow you to reset passwords everywhere else and um, oh and by the way if you've got two-factor authentication set up with sms well i've got your phone so i can i exactly. can change that everywhere so sms is extremely dangerous as opposed to something like a google authenticator that sits on the individual device itself um and has the the one-time passcodes or as you're seeing increasingly people looking for for biometrics and other markers. It's interesting though if you ask Customers. I I was with a bank last week and they said, oh, we did a survey of customers. And it turns out that the type of two-factor authentication they like the most is SMS. And it's like, great. Um, Do you know what Henry Ford has said about asking his customers questions? (laughs) Ah, If I'd have asked my customer what they wanted, they'd want a faster horse. Um, (laughs) So like, uh, personal operational security is becoming increasingly important people. And we can never have enough good lessons on that. Uh,
1: And and one of the things that I would add onto his uh, lessons learned and recommendations, this is clearly a time targeted attack on Sean as an individual um, don't go around talking about how much crypto you hold in your coinbase account Sean
0: yeah don't anyway. do that um, and, and also just don't hold crypto in, in in an account that's a hot wallet for an exchange that's publicly available yeah with, yeah. just don't do that um, all right uh, hopefully we've all learned something here today <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, stories we didn't have time to cover um, solar actually going to launch a blockchain based citizen card according to the block crypto.com. Um That does sound very Big Brother in the headline, but I hope there's more to it. Story from Reuters. Banks are going to invest around 50 million in a digital cash settlement project called Utility Settlement Coin. Hmm. Um, Bloomberg.com. Blockchain Bourse Sprinkle Exchange is nearing its first listing.
1: Wow. So talking of naming things, what does that sound like to you?
0: It sounds like a place where you go get different sprinkles for cakes, clearly. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Let's go innocent with this one. It's time for Tweet of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. Twitter of the week this week comes from At60Minutes. Um, so, 60 Minutes, as in, yes, that 60 Minutes TV show, um, said uh, Bitcoin was worth less than a penny when uh, Lazio Hazened and, no, I'm not going to even try, um, it was trading it for pizza. If he'd held, held on to all of his Bitcoin instead, he'd now have hundreds of millions of dollars. He tries not to think about that.
1: Tries. We can all try. Do or do not. There is no try.
0: Uh, So May 22nd, 2010 was the day he traded 10,000 Bitcoin for two pizzas, also now known as Bitcoin and two pizza day,
1: Um, which is
0: celebrated by many people every year.
1: Yeah, which is actually, I guess, at the time of publishing this podcast yesterday.
0: Indeed. It was, it was. Uh, So yeah, um, so watch out for May the 22nd. Celebrate it with a pizza, everybody. That's what's done. Uh, Interesting that, uh, obviously, crypto has been through a bit of a boom. Uh, This 60 Minutes piece, I haven't seen it, but a lot of people I trust say it was actually quite balanced and fair, um, that there are real risks out there. As we were talking a moment ago about the hacks, you are walking into the Wild West in crypto. And uh, there's a lot that needs to be done around securities and standards. Um, and and really just preventing hacks and theft is, is, is an absolutely key and crucial goal. All righty. Um, we're not done this week. There's, uh, there's an interview. You, you thought you got away without hearing from Colin G. Platt, oh, didn't you? Unlucky, guys. Uh, but uh, the dulcet tones of Colin G. Platt are back. I guess he's back back again. Uh, he caught up with Anton Rudakov, who's the head of sales at Keiko. I am joined here by Anton Rudikov,
2: Commercial Development Responsible at Kaiko. Thanks for coming on, Anton. Thank you, Colin, for having me on the podcast. So uh, we had a conversation a few weeks back, um, kind of came across what you guys are doing. Super interesting, focusing on data and how that might play into the cryptocurrency and markets, as well as how those might develop. Um, so could you kind of give our listeners a background on what it is you guys do at Kaiko?
3: Sure. So, Kaiko is a digital assets market data provider. We've been uh, operating in the space since twenty fourteen, and the company actually had uh, approximately two lives right now. So, we started in twenty fourteen. We had one of the first blockchain Ethereum uh, Ethereum blockchain explorers, sorry, and we also were providing some indexes. Uh, However, we were so early in the space that we kind of have to move to uh, market data in 2017. Uh, So the founder of the company is Pascal Gauthier, who just recently has been named CEO at Ledger, and he remains a very, very close advisor to our company. So uh, since 2017, we also have been joined by Omra, our current CEO, who's been working at HSBC for eight years previously to that in equity derivative structuring. uh, And we kind of really focused on market data. So what we do is very easy. We provide the infrastructure for crypto actors to uh, outsource their market data processes. Uh, That means that we collect and normalize market data, uh, trade data, order book data, and we also create aggregated types of data. So OHLCV or candles as people call them in crypto and VWAP data. Uh, We normalize this data and that's the important part and we re-deliver it in three ways. Uh, Data feed, so that would push directly Excel CSV files through the cloud, uh, Amazon or Google Cloud, Uh, We have a a high availability REST API and we've launched a WebSocket recently. So, depending on the type of data and the latency that you need, we can provide the data to you. So, we work with a lot of people. Mostly, I would say we work with crypto quant funds. Uh, A lot of academics have been using our research, uh, our data, sorry, to do research. And uh, we also work with crypto startups that need price data basically. So that's in short, the activity of Kaiko.
2: Can you talk to us about some of the challenges about around data in crypto? Because I know um, recently, um, actually, I believe you guys were cited on that. Um, there have been some, some pieces that have come out that have talked about um, maybe manipulation in, in the markets, maybe some of the data not being reliable. Uh, what are you guys seeing in that space?
3: Yeah. So one thing that's important about Kaiko is that we do not take sides when we collect the data. So we really collect the raw data from various exchanges. Currently, we cover 74 of those. So our policy at Kaiko is to collect all of the data and then to let people sort it out. So that's why we've been partnering with Bitwise, who used our data to actually derive what they call the real 10 exchanges. And they have put on their own analysis and their own algos to analyze the data. We really... Uh, think that data is um, very difficult to find in that space. And when you're an investor, like a trader or an investment fund, you need different types of data. You need market data, you need OTC data, and uh, you also need on-chain data. So we kind of cover the first part, which is market data. And uh, one example that we like to mention, I'm not going to mention the exchange, but one exchange printed some trades at 20K when Bitcoin was trading at 5K. And then they retracted this data set and they completely erased it. So we have kept it and we think that it's data that is still important uh, for people to have, actually. So that's our policy in the data. And uh, that's, I think, uh, one of the problems is to understand which data is real and which data is fake. So not everybody is able to do that in the market, but we believe that the most sophisticated investors or researchers in the space can actually do it and it's their job to kind of educate everybody. So this is really interesting. And and so on that Bitwise thing you cited, just for
2: our listeners, that was the, the one that was submitted um, by a proposed ETF to the SEC that was famously quoted as saying 95% of the the volume is fake or made up or at least questionable.
3: Exactly, that's the report I'm talking about. So they used our data and they compared it to data from other providers and they came out with this data set saying that basically 95% of the volume is is fake. This is, if if, uh, we're all in the crypto market for a while and this is things that we've heard about, Mm -hmm. but it's one of the rare, Cases where actually somebody uh, put uh, their name on it and and is actually saying that this is how it goes, and but everybody understands that we see some fake volume on all of the exchanges, pretty much.
2: So the other thing that you said which I thought is really interesting, and um, one of the one of the topics that I've been looking at for a little while is decentralized exchanges, and and one of the billing points that they bring up is well, all the data is is. Um, crystallized is, is made permanent and concrete and immutable inside of a blockchain and it's really interesting when you cite that point about one of these exchanges putting in data and then removing it that that's obviously some of that motivation but what you're saying is um, potentially somebody using your data set would say well there's a discrepancy now that wasn't there in the past but Are you actually putting all your data on a blockchain or does it live in a non-blockchain?
3: No, we don't put our data in a blockchain. We have a global infrastructure where we collect data in parallel on multiple servers and we store it uh, in AWS, basically. So for now, we're not storing data on a blockchain. We do have some blockchain specialists uh, in-house. However... Uh, given the amount of data that we're collecting daily, I'm not even sure that it's possible to put that all in a blockchain, especially a public one. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Absolutely, those blocks have to be massive. <laughs> um, so that, that brings up some other really, I think, unique and interesting aspects. Um, you, you mentioned the quantity of that data, um, going through and normalizing that data, um, and I guess feeding that back to your clients. It, it, that sounds a whole lot like stuff that I'm familiar with um, from traditional assets things like equities and interest rates and all those things does it look more like that or does it look more like a blockchain startup
3: no definitely we don't um, we don't tell about ourselves that we're a blockchain startup we're actually a data startup and that's what we do so the idea is, In the traditional financial space, which I come from, uh, people are used to using market data providers because they understand that it's uh, outsourcing their, their, uh, their efforts, their human efforts, and it's reducing their costs. However, in the crypto space, people are still not yet used to it. And that is due, I think, to the specificity of this ecosystem where you have a lot of exchanges. And one thing that I've noticed as well is that People who need the data are also the people who are executing and they need the same route basically for now because they're not uh, able to uh, trade properly and get the data at the same speed that they would like to to, to trade. Uh, I'm not sure if this was clear though.
2: So yeah, maybe you could explain that. So when you say route, that means that they're effectively um, pulling the data from you from a web socket in, in close to real time um, where available. Um, and then using that to make trading decisions, correct?
3: Exactly. So it's, I think the, the space is really fragmented and you have different types of players in there. And I'm really talking about quant funds or people who say that they are quant funds and the most sophisticated of those, those who are able to trade very fast on the markets. They are sometimes They can sometimes be actually limited by a market data provider because some of them will be just faster and they need the data faster and they just integrate directly with one or two exchanges. And for them, it might not make sense to go through a market data provider. To go back to the uh, more traditional uh, finance space, I think that um uh, there is the infrastructure which is there. You can go and use uh low latency services. You can co-locate your servers with exchanges, but that's not yet there in the crypto space. I was gonna ask
2: so um as as we're kind of speeding up the the way that we can receive data through through something like Keiko uh, do I have the ability to execute quicker i mean do any exchanges offer low latency solutions, whether it's colocation or otherwise?
3: I'm not exactly sure how many have that. Uh, we've done a partnership a few months back with BSO Network, who is a provider of low latency infrastructure. And it was a triple partnerships between Gemini, BSO, and Keiko. So BSO dedicated the part of their infrastructure to be able to obtain Gemini data through their infrastructure, but normalized by Keiko, basically. I'm not sure how many other exchanges currently are going to go this way. Uh, probably not a lot of those who already exists, but in the ones that are currently created and currently being developed by more institution who, who have been funded by more institutional investors. And I might be thinking about BACT or CTCX, for example. Those exchanges will probably uh, in the future uh, also co-locate. But however, I'm not exactly sure because this is not a conversation that I've held with them.
2: Mm-hmm. Can, you, can you talk to us a bit about, but the the investor side, the people that are buying your data, um, are there any major trends you see in that market? Uh, it, it's something we hear a lot about crypto hedge funds and crypto investors and institutions coming into it. Do you have any light you could shed on that?
3: Yeah. So the interesting part of that, I think, is the size of the industry and of the funds. And how we call a big fund in the crypto space and how we call a big fund in the traditional industry space, there is a big difference in that. So for crypto, a big fund, 75 million of assets under management, 100 million of assets under management. And for the traditional industry, that's very small. So I think that's the big difference between the traditional industry and the crypto industry is really the size of the funds that are traded in there. And,
2: and something else that um, you and I had a discussion about uh, last time we spoke was um, there are a lot of people out there that seem very interested in this space and, and maybe talk about these numbers. Uh, are we seeing that actually kind of transition into people actually getting involved or is it is it still more research at this point?
3: Yes, uh, we actually see some flow from, tradi- from, from the traditional uh, finance industry into the crypto industry. One thing that I have to mention is we see a lot of people who do quant trading. So I think even for retail, they already have tools that have been developed that allow people to create trading bots and not to just follow the market as uh, as a retail investor might do in the equity markets, for example. So that's, um, uh, that's one of the things is that a lot of the market is actually uh, more uh, using more technology, more AI, and more algos. Then we have the traditional players, more traditional hedge funds. I think the ones that we see uh, are more the ones who already do some alternative type of investments. They either invest in some commodities or they're already used to use some alternative data sets and to create strategies. However, As we see right now, they're just dipping their toes in the market, Uh, they're taking small amounts of data, they're creating strategies, they're creating signals, they're making some partnerships in the space, Uh, but it's a very slow process, to be honest, and I think we see more of those now than we were seeing six months ago or a year ago, for example.
2: That sounds quite positive. So, you know, what we've been watching, at least as we're recording this in, in mid-May, uh, uh, the market's been quite perky lately. Um, do you think that that's partially a reflection of of maybe some of this optimism about institutions coming true based on what you've seen? Or do you think maybe the market's getting ahead of itself a bit?
3: <laughs> Are you talking about today? Uh, just the last week or so, let's right. say. <laughs> um, I mean, since I've uh, started in the space a, a couple years ago, uh, I've heard about a few problems that uh, that hinder the development of the industry, and I think one of them is regulation. One of them is custody, uh, liquidity, security. So we've been hearing those terms for a while now, and I think it's in um, understanding the developments and the solving of those problems that we will see the development of of the industry. I'm not sure that we have better solutions for those problems that I mentioned now than we had six months ago or a year ago. We can see uh, initiatives with Ledger Vault, with Fidelity coming into the market, providing custody solutions. But also one problem that I haven't mentioned is also education of those financial institutions. Because on one side, you have a lot of people who are leaving the traditional financial markets to go work in crypto or in blockchain. And on the other side, you also have regulators who are very wary about the space and traditional mainstream media who is always uh, going over the line and exager- exaggerating things. Uh, that's, but that's really my personal opinion on, on that. Okay. Fair enough. And, and to be honest, like for today, I think, uh, if you've been in the crypto market for a while, you can see, uh, some indicators. One indicator that I like to say is when my friends from retail start calling me and asking me about Bitcoin, then it's time to arbitrage some of my positions. <laughs>
2: Uh, whenever I see Xrp go up I always think bad things are coming <laughs> but you know maybe security tokens really are taking off um, I'm just being flippant now obviously so the the last question I have for you you guys are obviously based in Paris um, greatest country in the world uh, France I'm looking Thanks. at I'm looking at Petra's little head here um, <laughs> um, can you tell us about the the market in Paris um, particularly around crypto it's something that we don't cover enough um, what's going on there
3: yeah so i think france has a small crypto ecosystem but it's a very strong uh ecosystem so france is very famous for its mathematicians and engineers and those are those are the guys who are mostly in the market so our offices are actually uh in the same uh building as consensus so we work with them uh, quite a lot. And I think in general, the French ecosystem is really uh, close to each other. I think people know each other pretty well, and they're really happy to uh, exchange and introduce each other. So I think the market is, is growing. It's not as big as it can be in the US or in the New York or in the Silicon Valley, uh, and it's less financial, I would say and more technical. So we do have a lot of developers and technical people. There's uh, really a lively ecosystem in terms of tech. Uh, The investors, the more traditional investors in France are really slowly starting to look at crypto there are some VC investments which are done by traditional like private equity players or VC players but it's still slow however I think that the amount of uh, research that is produced the um, uh, the proof of concepts that are being uh, that are being produced are really good and to be honest I think that the best uh the best indicator of the devel- development of the ecosystem is people who are uh, experienced in their jobs, in finance, in tech, in dev, that are moving from specific industries like ad tech or big data or artificial intelligence and bringing these um, skills to the crypto market and to the blockchain market. So I'm pretty positive about the French ecosystem the government also is um, taking some steps uh, to help the actors of the french ecosystem to move forward they're creating this visa they're helping with the tax processes so it's as always we have the people but it's going to be very slow uh, in development due to the regulation basically and and that is always the case here. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that's not uh, specific to crypto in France. <laughs> <laughs> of course,
2: we love it all the same. <laughs> well, and uh, thank you very much for coming on. Can you tell people where they can find
3: out more about you and about Kaiko? Sure. You can directly go on our website www.kaiko.com. And you're free to fill up a form if you have some questions about the data or just to browse the website and you can contact us anytime. We're happy to speak with you. Uh, We do sell data, but we also provide data for partnerships, for researchers, for academics. So people who need the data, uh, don't hesitate to reach out. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot for having me, Colin.
0: Alrighty. Thank you very much, Colin G. And thank you to Anton. Uh, Just as a quick reminder, this podcast is made by 11FS and we're a challenger consultancy working to shape the next generation of financial services. Uh, We create digital propositions working with banks, big techs and all kinds of companies who want to get the most out of where finance meets customers. Remember, everybody, if you go to bit.ly forward slash blockchain live, you can come see us live on June the 11th uh, and those tickets are going very, very quick, so get them quickly. Um, Sarah, where can people find out more about you?
1: You can find me on Twitter at Seronimo. You can't actually find me in many other places on the internet because I deleted my Facebook and LinkedIn account. Sorry, guys. Uh, you can also tweet us at Clearmatics or go to github.com forward slash Clearmatics.
0: love a Git repo. Uh, you find me at sytaylor on Twitter or email and we directly simon at 11fs.com. Uh, big thank you to our amazing production team here at 11FS, producer Petrit, Laura and Hannah and of course Alex, our editor. Uh, and uh, saying hi to our friends over at Crypto Compare at the Digital Asset Summit. Um, day one is uh, after Blockchain Insider Live on the 12th of June. So make sure you get yourself over there. Uh, thank you for listening. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye for now.